That certainly is a wonderful truth, isn't it? Let's bow together and allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts afresh, to write God's love. Would you tell the Lord, thank you for the ways in which he has penned and proven his love in your life in recent days. Give thanks to him. Express your love to him too. The Lord has not made us to be merely containers of his love. He wants us to be channels of his love. Whom is it that God would love through you? Who's on your heart today? Would you pray and ask God to use you to touch that person, to touch that family, to minister to that situation with his love? His love is to be shared. Our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, we pray that you would grant, according to the riches of your glory, that we might be strengthened with power through your Spirit in the inner man. Do this so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And so that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen. Would you open your Bible, please, and turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel with me as we think today regarding the handwriting on the wall. That expression, the handwritings on the wall, is synonymous today with something that is foreboding and inevitable. The stock value of a company collapses. The handwriting is on the wall. The stockholders are in trouble. The grades are already penned in the book of the professor. The handwriting is on the wall for the student. There aren't enough votes to get the bill on through Congress. The handwriting is on the wall for that piece of legislation. This cliche, the handwriting's on the wall, finds its origin in our text today, Daniel chapter 5. It refers to the fixed and final state of a matter, the end of an issue, the certain results. It means that there is no more chance. It's all over. The event in this chapter of the book of Daniel occurred in 539 B.C., more than five centuries before our Lord was born in Bethlehem. It came at the end of the once grand and glorious empire of Babylon. Daniel had lived through 65 years of the history of this nation. 
You recall, if you've been with us in our study of Daniel on previous Sunday evenings, that Daniel was carried to Babylon as a captive from Jerusalem in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar first invaded Palestine. And not only Daniel was taken, but others were taken prisoner as well. The best and the brightest of the Jewish young men were taken off, captive, exiled to Babylon, there to become servants of the sovereign there. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar also carried off certain vessels of gold and silver from the temple in Jerusalem. Two years after he arrived in Babylon, Daniel, by this time a teenager about 17 years of age, was called into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar that he might interpret a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had regarding a large statue made of various metals of descending worth, from gold in the head all the way down to clay and iron in the feet and toes of the statue. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know from his wise men what the dream was and what the interpretation of it was. Well, the wise men were in a heap of trouble because they had no way of knowing what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed, though they could make an educated guess as to the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar knew that, of course. So he wanted the content of the dream before he would listen to the interpretation of it. Well, Daniel was God's man on the spot. He came into the court of Nebuchadnezzar and there gave to him the dream and the interpretation. An interpretation that really reaches right down to our day today. And then it was uh, just uh, shortly after that, that, uh, well, actually 35 years later, that uh, Daniel was again called into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar had had a vision this time of a tree. It was a large tree that had been cut down, but which retained its roots. There was a stump there that was left. And Daniel was asked to give the meaning of this, and he did. God had given Nebuchadnezzar this dream. The tree was Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was going to be cut down, but not entirely removed. God would cut him down to size, as it were, humble him, and then he would recognize the true God, the God of the Jews. Well, Nebuchadnezzar let a year pass, and then one day was out walking on his veranda, his terrace, and looked over the city of Babylon, which he had helped to build and rebuild. And he said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for my majesty and glory? And at that moment, God struck him with a mental disorder a derangement in his thinking. He imagined himself to be an animal. And so his servants put him out to pasture. And for seven years he lived like a wild animal. and took upon himself a strange appearance as a neglected human being. And then God gave him back his sanity. Nebuchadnezzar recognized the true God and gave glory to him. And some of the language in Daniel chapter 4 suggests that Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer in the God that Daniel worshipped. Nebuchadnezzar died shortly after that experience in 562 B.C. 
After he died, there were several kings who came to reign, but through intrigue, murder, and assassination, uh, their reigns did not last long nor amount to much. Until 556 B.C., a stronger man came to power. His name was Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus had a son whose name was Belshazzar. We did not know this until more recent years. Daniel 5 talks about this Belshazzar, but liberal critics of the Bible have said there was no man in history by that name. But archaeologists have dug up proof that, in fact, Nabonidus' son was Belshazzar. And Nabonidus was a rather unusual ruler. He did not enjoy living in the palace in Babylon, the capital city. He much preferred a retreat that he built in Arabia, or he liked to be out leading his armies, but he didn't like to live in Babylon. And so most of his 17 years that he was the king, he was gone from the city. But somebody had to be there to take charge. So he appointed his son, Belshazzar, as co-regent, as the number two man in the kingdom. And if somebody had a decision that had to be made, he was, for all practical purposes, the king of Babylon. Now, it was that first year of Belshazzar's power as co-regent that Daniel himself had a vision. We studied this in chapter 7. It was a vision that Daniel had of uh, four rather weird beasts. And we saw as we worked our way through that chapter that, in, again, the interpretation reaches all the way down past our day into the future. There's historical aspect to it, and there is prophetic aspect to it from where we live today. At that time, of course, it was all future. And then three years after that vision, Daniel had another vision given to him by God. This one had to do with a ram, a goat, and a little horn, chapter 8. We studied that together. And once more we saw that while most of that chapter was historical for our day, we look back upon the fulfillment of it. There are certain aspects of it that are yet future, that have not been fulfilled, and which we anticipate to come to pass. That was in 553 B.C. Now chronologically, we come to chapter 5 of Daniel. Because now is the end of Belshazzar's reign. A little bit of historical background is important before we look at this chapter because you need to understand that while Babylon was the greatest power at this point, there was a rising power on the horizon. The Medes and the Persians had joined together in an alliance. And their leader, Cyrus, was growing in power and was beginning to challenge Babylon. In fact, he brought his armies toward Babylon, and Nabonidus, Belshazzar's father, led the armies out to battle against Cyrus and the Persians, but was overcome. And he began to flee, and he fled southward past Babylon, leaving the city of Babylon, his capital city, exposed to the advancing Persian armies coming from the north. And so as we come to this occasion, which happened on October 12, 539, 
When we come to this occasion, the city of Babylon has been surrounded by the Persian armies. It is a city under siege. And so it may seem strange to you what is said here, that Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. One of the things we're going to see in this chapter, in which we see throughout the book of Daniel, is that God is sovereign. The history of the nations is determined by his purposes. He raises up a nation and a people. And when his purpose has been accomplished, he puts them down and raises another up. And that is not only true of ancient nations, it is still true in the 1990s. That God is sovereign over the nations of the world. As we look at this chapter, it easily falls into three divisions. The first one is the indiscretion of the king, verses 1 through 4. Belshazzar called a feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Customarily, he was probably seated upon a platform so that everyone in the banquet hall could see him, and as he would drink or as he would eat, they would follow his example. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, and the phrase there indicates that he was more than tasting, I mean, he was getting into it. He was drunk by this point. He gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. Just need to insert this point that the word father can be used a number of different ways in the language of the Old Testament. And it does not mean his immediate father in this context, but it means his ancestor. Actually, it would be his grandfather. And so, it, it, when you see father here, or you see son referring to Belshazzar in relation to Nebuchadnezzar, it's not exactly father-son, it's grandfather-grandson. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple these gold and silver vessels. And so now Belshazzar orders them to be brought in order that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Does this seem like a rather foolish thing to you? That Belshazzar would call a feast on a night like this? When his city is surrounded by an enemy army? Perhaps he did it in order to raise the morale of his people. Maybe these thousand nobles needed a boost at this point. That's possible. And so he called a feast so that they might see him relaxed and not worried about the armies outside. It may be also that he called the feast to celebrate the security of the city. Now it was a false sense of security he had, but he did feel confident that the city would not fall. Now why was that? Well, Babylon was a city of some 3,000 acres in size. And around the city were walls in fact, double walls, two walls standing parallel around the whole city, 15 miles of two walls, walls that were 85 feet thick, 
and walls that were up to 350 feet high, as tall as a 35-story building. At a hundred spots around the city on the wall, there were towers from which the soldiers of Belshazzar could shoot arrows, pour oil, etc., down upon the enemy that might be trying to scale the walls or come to the city. This was an impregnable city. Inside the walls, they had enough provision to last 20 years of siege. No one would have to go outside the gate of the city of Babylon to find food for 20 years. Enough food for everybody for two decades. How long can an army out there sustain itself? Not only that, they had all the water they needed because the city, the the river uh, called Euphrates, flowed right through the heart of the city, under the walls, through the city. And so they had all the water they needed. So you see, Belshazzar had a great sense that his city could never fall. Therefore, he called a feast. And it's clear that this drunken feast soon turned into an orgy as the women were brought in. And in the midst of all this debauchery, Belshazzar had an idea. He wanted to do something that would really raise the morale of this pagan group of nobles. He decided to defy the God of Israel. And so he ordered that those vessels that had been taken by Grandpa 65 years before this from the temple in Jerusalem should be brought into the banquet hall. Now up to this point, they had likely been kept in a temple where they were preserved. But Belshazzar wants them brought so that they can use these sacred vessels for drinking their wine and for offering out libation offerings, drink offerings, at the feet of their idols of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So that's the situation. We have a king here who is acting indiscreetly in his drunkenness. He is thoughtless in his debauchery. He is defiant in his attitude against the true God. That brings us to the next section of the chapter, which is the intervention of God. The party is interrupted by a supernatural act. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. There's the source of another picture of fright that sometimes is used. I mean, this man went to pieces as the sovereign God now announces his verdict upon the kingdom of Babylon. The language here suggests that the hand came through the wall backwards. There was no arm attached to it, just a hand. And in the hand was a writing instrument of some sort, and the hand began to write words upon the plaster wall of the banquet hall. It is interesting that archaeologists in digging around this ancient city of Babylon have uncovered the king's palace, And in that palace they have found the remains 
of a banquet hall that was 55 feet wide and 169 feet long, well able to take care of the crowd of a thousand nobles. And not only that, but there is proof that the walls of this banquet hall were made of plaster, not just ordinary stone. And so it is very likely that the archaeologists have uncovered the very room where this event took place on that night in 539 B.C. And as the hand wrote, absolute terror filled the heart of Belshazzar. He was a religious man, you recall, many gods. And his heart is now filled with terror as he recognizes that there is some supernatural force that has entered into his room. It is interesting that God chose to write right over the lampstand, the place in the room that would be best lighted. And scholars who have studied these things tell us that likely that lampstand was beside where Belshazzar was. He would be in the best lighted part of this banquet hall. And so the picture that comes to mind is of a hand that comes out of a wall right behind Belshazzar and begins to write over his head. And the king called aloud to bring in his advisors, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. These are the wise men of Babylon. And he promised them reward, a robe of purple, a gold necklace, and the third place in the kingdom. If anyone can tell him what these words are and what they mean. Now you understand why he promised the third place in the kingdom because of what we said before regarding the arrangement between his father and himself. So he was offering the highest place that he could offer to the one who could interpret these words. The writing remained visible for a period of time so that everyone who wished to could examine the words. The wise men came in. They looked at the words. They could not even decipher what the words were, let alone tell the meaning of them. Now, it's wondered why they were unable to read the words. Well, it may be that God used a script of lettering that they did not recognize. We don't really know why they could not read. That's not been determined. But they could not even read the words that were up there. Some have thought perhaps they too were a part of this drunken brawl outside the room. And they were too intoxicated to do the work that they were asked to do in reading the words. But their inability even increased the alarm in Belshazzar. He recognized that the wisest men of his realm were unable to read the words. And his face became paler and his nobles even more perplexed. That brings us then to the third portion of the chapter, the interpretation of Daniel. You will notice that he is summoned by the king at the suggestion of the queen, it says in verse 10. Most likely this is not Belshazzar's wife, the queen, for she was probably in this room. It describes his wives being in there earlier. The word queen here can also mean queen mother, which would mean that this would be the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Now the queen mother came into the room hearing all of the racket, and she said, 
O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who can tell you what this is all about. The language she uses here indicates that at least she knew about Daniel from her father, Nebuchadnezzar. Because in chapter 4, some of the same wording used by her father of Daniel is now used by her as she speaks to Belshazzar. And she describes the greatness of this man. And she says, Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Verse, 13, verse 12. You will notice, by the way, that she calls him Daniel first, and then says, Whom the king, that's her father, named Belteshazzar. Do you notice there the, the similarity between Belshazzar and Belteshazzar? The names are almost identical. They both mean God will protect. By God it means Bel, or Marduk, their deity in Babylon. Bel will protect the king, is what Belshazzar means. Belshazzar means. And Bel will protect is what Belteshazzar means. But she prefers to call him Daniel. Now the word Daniel has the name of the true God in it. Daniel. Elohim. El. E-L on the end of it. Therefore some commentators suggest to us that this woman really understood the God of Daniel. And she understood that he, Daniel, was a prophet of the true God. And she herself may have been a convert to the God whom her father, it seems, had come to worship at the end of his life. The God of Israel. But she says, Daniel will tell you the meaning of these words. So he is brought in, and the king says, Are you that Daniel who is the one, one of the exiles from Judah? <clears throat> now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, that illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. He recounts the failure of his wise men, but he says in verse 16, I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will get my reward, what I offer to the others. And so Belshazzar uh, offers to him the very highest prize that he could offer in the land. Daniel's character is revealed in verse 17 as he refuses the reward. Isn't it marvelous that after 65 years living in this pagan, godless culture, Daniel is still a man who refuses to be motivated by what motivates the pagans. He stands above them. He stands apart from them as a man of God. Oh, that's the kind of people God wants today in our pagan culture. Who over the years of even close association and working with people who don't know God, refuse to accept the same kinds of motivations of the world. Who stand above and apart from all of that as his men, his women, in the midst of paganism. Daniel's message in verse 18, beginning in verse 18, begins with 
and historic illustration. He points back to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. What probably happened to Nebuchadnezzar as he experienced this mental disorder, this insanity, was that his servants, in order to keep this knowledge from the rest of the kingdom, put him into a royal preserve or a park where they kept animals for the king's enjoyment. And they kept him there privately, letting no one know what was happening to Nebuchadnezzar over these seven years. But now, that had been, by the way, a royal family secret. And now, in the midst of everybody, Daniel exposes it. He says, here's what happened to your grandfather. Until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he sets it, he sets over it whomever he wishes, pointing to the sovereignty of God. And yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. The rest of the nobles didn't, but, but Belshazzar knew. The message that we see here in this historic illustration is that God hates pride. God will deal with defiance. He will humble those who exalt themselves before him. He will bring them into judgment. And so Daniel now very boldly lays before the king God's indictment of him. In the first place he says in verse 22, You have sinned against knowledge, Belshazzar. You knew what happened to your grandfather. You knew what God does to the proud. You knew how he judges the defiant. You see, it is one thing to sin in ignorance. It is another thing to sin against knowledge. And that's what Belshazzar had done. That was the first indictment. Next, he says, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven by bringing in the vessels and abusing them. You have blasphemed God, Belshazzar. Indictment number two. And then number three, he says, in the middle of the verse, you have praised the gods of silver and gold and so on, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified. Point number three, you have worshipped idols and not the true God. They had poured out their drink offerings in their drunkenness, to these false gods who cannot see or hear or understand anything. And not only that, the very God who gives to Belshazzar his life breath, 
who enables him to walk in his ways, Belshazzar has lifted his fist to and defied. And therefore we have the indication that Belshazzar's time is up. Verse 24, Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. And so we come now to the prophetic interpretation, verses 25 to 28. Now this is the inscription that was written out, Mani, Mani, Takil, Eupharsin. Those are the words. Obviously the first one is repeated, then there are two other words. This is the interpretation of the message, says Daniel. Mani. What does that mean? Well, it is a word in the Aramaic that means numbered. One, two, three, four, five, six. Numbered. Counted out. And here's the meaning of it. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. God has measured out your reign, Belshazzar. The time's up. Tekil. That is another Aramaic word that means to be weighed or to be found light in the balance. <coughs> in those days they would weigh things in scales, in a balance scale, and the measurement weight would be put on one side and the item to be weighed on the other side to see if it was worthy. And what is happening is that God has put Belshazzar and his reign into the scale and he's been found light. He's not worthy in character, in his morality, to carry on as the king. He says, you have been found, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, that is a singular form of the plural form that is used in the earlier statement. The you is a connective, like a, a conjunction, and... And the end of the word, S-I-N, is the plural form of the word. Daniel chooses to make it singular. He says, Paris. Now here again is an Aramaic word. It is a, a word that means to divide or to break into something. And so he says, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. And so that is the message. The handwriting on the wall is, you're finished, Belshazzar, and so is this empire that you rule over. It says in verse 29 that Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple, but a necklace of gold around his neck issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And so he got what he didn't really care for anyway, which he had earlier refused. Why did Belshazzar give him this stuff? Well, it may have been that Belshazzar was uh, mocking Daniel. That's possible. It may have been that all of this was kind of like a joke. When he heard what the writing was and what it meant, Belshazzar responded by chuckling. <laughs> this could never be. Hey, Bring the robe and put it on this man. Put the necklace around his neck. Let's issue a proclamation regarding him. He is now the third ruler in the kingdom. 
That's possible to understand it that way. Whatever reason he had, the fact is it wasn't worth a whole lot. For he was the third ruler in Babylon for but a few hours. Because that same night, it says, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. We'll talk about him next week. On this night, according to uh, secular historians, October 12, 539 B.C., the Persian army figured out a way to get through the walls of the city of Babylon. They couldn't go over the walls. They couldn't go through the walls. Therefore, they engineered a diversion of the Euphrates River and caused the river to be diverted into a lake bed so that the river level dropped. And the Persian soldiers were then easily able to wade into the river and under the wall of the city of Babylon, entering the city. And when they got in there, according to Herodotus and Xenophon, two of the Greek historians, they found out that the whole city was involved in this feast. Everybody was making merry. There was nobody defending the place. And they say that there was not a person who was killed in defending the city of Babylon. The Persian army simply entered in, eventually got to this hall where the party was going on, and there they killed the king and took over the city, as it were, without an arrow being fired. From this chapter, we learn some important lessons that we want to observe. The first one is simply this, that when God's moment of judgment arrives, nothing can provide escape. Belshazzar's moment had come. The handwriting was on the wall, and there was nothing that could provide deliverance for this man. He was damned. He was doomed at this point. When God's moment of judgment comes, it's final. You may not know the name of Robert Ingersoll. A few days ago I was in a bookstore where I was looking at the used religious section and I came across one of his writings, a collection of a number of the lectures that he gave. Robert Ingersoll was an atheist, a man who was devoutly anti-Christian, anti-God, and who traveled all over the country giving lectures and debating Christian leaders of his day, trying to dissuade people from their faith. He was the Madeline Murray O'Hare of his generation. And there were times, as has Madeline Murray, when he challenged God and he said, Now if there is a God... Let him strike me dead right now because of what I'm saying. Nothing happened. He said, see, there is no God. And his blasphemy continued for years and years until the moment of God's judgment came. You see, God is patient with sinners. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not respond to the silly defiance 
of a man like Robert Ingersoll. God is not impetuous. God is patient. But there comes a moment when the handwriting is on the wall. And Ingersoll died. And he met the God, he met the God whom he defied and was judged. I was looking recently in a Life magazine, a collection of pictures from life from the last 50 years. A fascinating book. And among the pictures was one that was taken, I think, back in the 50s, covertly in the mausoleum in Moscow of uh, Lenin and Stalin in their death repose. As you know, their bodies have been preserved and are on display there in the mausoleum because they are the heroes of what is now a collapsing revolution. But here were two men likewise who defied God and got away with it for decades until the moment of God's judgment came. And then there was no escape. And it's not only true of atheists, it's not only true of communists, it's true of, of capitalists. A few weeks ago, Malcolm Forbes, the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest men in the world, a man who last year invited the rich, the wealthy, the famous from all over the world to come to a 70th birthday party and flew them there in Concord jets, died suddenly. My point is that when the moment of judgment arrives, there's nothing that can deliver one out of the hands of God. So how wise to make peace with God while you can. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, says the prophet. If today you are one who is outside of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. Maybe like Ingersoll of old, you lifted your fist in God, you lift your fist in God's face in defiance. Or like very sincere religious people today, that defiance and rebellion against God is inside. It's not exterior, it's interior problem. You know you're not a Christian. Today's your opportunity. Do not delay. For when the moment of God's judgment arrives, there's none that can deliver you. There's another lesson that we must look at before we close, and that is, it is possible. It is possible to be a Daniel in the midst of a pagan culture. It is possible to be a man or a woman of integrity and of purity in the midst of godliness. It doesn't happen automatically. How foolish are the parents who say, well... I'm going to raise my kids and someday let them make their own decision as to what they want to believe, if they want to believe. How damnable that is to parenting. Daniel had been raised, obviously, by godly parents. So the time he was a teenager, when he was jerked away from family, from home, from culture, and taken hundreds of miles away, never to see parents, home, or culture again... And to be raised in the midst of a pagan place 
Daniel was able to stand alone. He did so as a teenager at about 15 years of age. And now we see him at 80, standing before the king, giving him the truth of God. It is possible in 1990 to be a Daniel. It doesn't happen automatically. We parents have part to play in that and the way we nurture our children in the things of God. But it's also up to us to look after our own personal spiritual development. To develop in ourselves the courage to take the unpopular path. To commit ourselves to lay everything on the line for God. To consecrate our all to Him, to Him alone. Oh, that we might respond to what the, the chorus writer penned when he said, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. What our culture today needs is a population of Daniels. Well, you see, we are living not only in a pagan culture, we are living in a culture that is likewise under the judgment of God. And if you look carefully, you can see the enemy outside the walls while our civilization is partying. And we think we cannot collapse, but I tell you, in one night, as this ancient empire collapsed, so can we. Oh, to be Daniels. Oh, to be men and women of God who are committed to him, whatever the cost. Who will not buy into the spoils of the world system. Who, when the culture comes and says, we'll give you a purple robe, we'll put nice ornaments on you, we'll put you in a position of power. Men and women who say, I will not settle for that. I will be God's person. That's what we need today, are Daniels, who will represent God faithfully, even when the handwriting is on the wall.